brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Back in the saddle, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And besides being created as a slave species and thrust into a debt-based system of rule full of physical, spiritual, dietary, economic, cosmic, psychological, and environmental control mechanisms, I think we're doing all right. Which is saying a lot when you consider the best efforts of long-standing elite bloodlines and their megacorporations doing their damnedest to mold the earth into an unlivable hellscape. And one can only imagine the amazing world we could have with the quarantines around natural medicine, free energy, and anti-gravity lifted, and the skewed artificial barrier of green paper broken down. In the meantime, all we can do is spread the good word to the uninitiated about what's possible, what's been done, where we came from, and why we're here. Because I doubt we manifested into 2019 just to break box office records for Disney and die a slow, miserable death courtesy of Bayer and Monsanto. And today's guest, Brad Olson, would most likely agree as he's written extensively about all of this in the literary one-two punch that is his books Modern Esoteric and Future Esoteric, with a third in the series coming next year to complete the set entitled Beyond Esoteric. Brad is also an award-winning travel writer, first gaining notoriety in 2010 when his travel guide, Sacred Places North America, 108 Destinations, won the Bay Area Travel Writers Top Gold Prize Award. Brad is also a popular voice on the conspiratorial conference scene, a publisher, and an event promoter. But that's not all, folks. Brad is also hot off the heels of a recent trip to Antarctica to try and scope out hidden structures, buried pyramids, and maybe even Admiral Byrd's passageway to the inner Earth firsthand. So let's get into it. The globe-trotting guru, intercontinental explorer, and esoteric author from up on high, the man himself, Brad Olson. Welcome to The Higher Side. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me on. That's quite an introduction. (laughs) Yeah, you got it, man. It is a a true honor and a pleasure. I know you're very busy, constantly traveling, and you seem to be taking full advantage of your limited time in this round of life. And I guess it was kind of back in February, March at this point, but you did make the journey few dare to make, and you set foot on the elusive continent of Antarctica. I think that's really something. 
Obviously, we talk about it a lot. It seems like there are more than a few secrets hidden in the ice. And I understand there is an area down there that you call the Illuminati Disneyland as well. That's interesting. But I just got to ask you about that trip. It sounds pretty incredible, huh? Well, it was indeed, and not many people ever get to see this white continent, which is the fifth largest continent in the world. It's twice the size of Australia, about the size of Canada and the lower 48 combined. So the distances are vast. The continent is massive. And right now, when it's the Antarctica winter, there are only a few hundred people, a skeleton crew on the various bases and research stations that are down there. So it's virtually an uninhabited continent on this very heavily populated planet, which is somewhat unusual, but considering that the continent is covered in over 99% of glacial ice and snowpack, it's no wonder that it would be such an inhospitable and difficult place to live year-round. Yes, and the trip seems pretty grueling. I understand you go through the Drake Passage, you couldn't eat for 36 hours, you lost 20 pounds. I mean, talk to us about this aspect of the journey. Yeah, for sure. The barriers of entry were very high, <laughs> and it was actually three days I was throwing up, couldn't hold down any food. Yeah, lost over 20 pounds. Mm. And the seas are extremely rough. It is the roughest seas in the world. It's where the Atlantic meet the Pacific in the Southern Ocean, and the waves are just tremendously high. It's almost like we had to take turns doing watch, and you'd see water all around. It's like, oh my, we're so screwed. Oh. <laughs> but then the boat would just rise right up, and then you'd look around, you could see the horizon for miles around, and then boom, down in the trough again. So imagine that for three days straight. So I threw up all the food I was holding in my body, and then couldn't hold anything down. So literally five days without eating. Hmm. But surprisingly, being seasick, you don't really get hungry. You get kind of thirsty. But even when I take a drink of water, throw it up in a dry heave right away. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. And it was one of the hardest trips to go anywhere in my life. And I've been to all seven continents now. And this one really kicked my butt. Man, yeah. Seems like a rite of passage of the highest order, and I salute you for it. And I have to ask, of course, people heard me use that term Illuminati Disneyland. That's one from you. It seems that's something you've coined. What is up with that term? Well, this is related to all the elite that were going down there around 2015-2016 time range, including John Kerry, the Secretary of State on Election Day. You'd think he may have helped to elect the next president for his party, but he was down in Antarctica. Buzz Aldrin, around the same time, second man to step on the moon, down in Antarctica, who had to leave very quickly for health reasons and made a very notorious tweet. Now, it could have been someone was faking his Twitter account, but he said something to the effect that we have seen the face of evil, we're all in danger. And then the tweet came down shortly thereafter. And then there were a whole bunch of other elite royal family members, such as King Carlos of Spain was down there in that time frame, as well as Prince Harry was doing a cross-country ski trip to the South Pole, of all places, with some of his military buddies, as well as 
movie stars such as Tom Hanks and quite a few other people who you'd think they would find warmer climates to take their vacation. But indeed, we're all down there in that time. So the question is, what were they going to do? What were they going to see? And there were many rumors swirling around that there was a massive craft under the ice, not just one, but actually three, and the largest being three miles across, as well as pyramids sticking through the ice, as well as the possibility of antediluvian civilizations, megalithic block buildings going to the archaeological sites itself under the ice, where they're pulling out ice age animals such as mammoths and mastodons, as well as very tall, non-human ET bodies. So the high strange in all this, Greg, is what we call the Illuminati Disneyland, <laughs> as well as the possibility of there being under ice bases, hearkening all the way back to New Schwabenland and the Nazis' claim on the region of Antarctica now called Queen Maudland. Mm-hmm. And while you cannot see some of these things under the ice with Google Earth, you can see other things. And there are very tantalizing clues from Google Earth, such as what look like step pyramids, what look like other kind of structures. But there are also places in Antarctica that are whited out by Google Earth, where you can see a very obvious overlay. So it's kind of strange. Some places they let you see and other places they don't. And that only contributes to the high strangeness of this area, that there is a form of censorship, but then there's also a form of openness to show us what might be down there. Mm. Yeah, there are some curious ones. It seems like all different facets of members of the big club and all kinds of different sectors got the privilege to go down there. The Buzz Aldrin one is interesting because I obviously – don't really trust the footage we saw of the moon landing. But hey, if people went to the moon through some means of exotic craft, I'm definitely open to that. And I think about Buzz Aldrin, it's like, well, what if he was asked to come down there to see if maybe some glyphs or some certain architecture matches what he might have seen on the moon? That's a fascinating proposition to me. But you got titans of science and religion. It's very strange. I think Definitely something was found. That's right. I actually had a opportunity to meet Buzz Aldrin at a travel show about 15 years ago. And I just kind of hovered around, just shadowing him. He started walking the floor, and I got a chance to talk to him. And I said, when you were on the return trip on the Apollo vessel, did a bunch of orbs happen to come by and enter the craft while you and Neil Armstrong were returning. And he just shot me with these steely blue eyes. He didn't say yes and he didn't say no, but I kind of took it to think that he was implying that, yes, something along those lines happened. So if they did do the moonshot, and I agree with you, there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a big book called The Dark Moon that's about as thick as your palm. With all the photos that NASA released, many with double shadows, none of them with stars showing, and a whole bunch of other very strange anomalies that suggest that, at the very least, some of those shots had been staged and made up, 
maybe in the event that the Apollo missions failed, they didn't want to disappoint the American public. Who knows why? But it is a fact that around that time in 1968-69, Stanley Kubrick had created a lunar landscape scene for his movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is very realistic. Mm -hmm. And that he may have had a hand in helping NASA create some of these insurance policy shots that eventually were released as real. So Buzz Aldrin has been known to punch people in the face when they question him or try to get him to swear on a Bible that they landed <laughs> on the moon. So there's even more strangeness in that, that Buzz Aldrin doesn't want to put his hand on a Bible and say, I swear on the Bible that we went to the moon. So things <laughs> like that are, are also adding fuel to the fire so to speak, in the whole controversy of whether or not they made it there or not. But it could be that Buzz was going down there with help of NASA to investigate some artifacts that have been turning up since the time of Admiral Byrd, too. There's a picture of him with this very strange-looking glyph, and some of the reports he had of his explorations of Antarctica are equally tantalizing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they are. Man, I love it. It feels like we're really off to the races now. And so it is just so rare to talk to someone who's been there firsthand. Did you learn anything or see anything that you otherwise wouldn't have known about if you didn't take the trip? Like, what did taking the trip firsthand do for you that maybe you could relay to some of us who won't be so lucky? Well, first of all, it's true that very few humans will ever set foot on Antarctica. Only about 350,000 people make it down there per year. Most, of course, are tourists on cruise ships, which come out of Ushuaia, Argentina, which is where we disembarked on a sailboat, though. I was on a 74-foot sailboat with 14 of us. And I looked at the register of all the years that tourism has been happening, just basically started as a trickle in the 1980s up until this point, and then we did the calculation of how many people in all the years divided by the world population, and it's 0.002% of all humans on the world have been to Antarctica. So it's extremely small amount to go to the fifth largest continent on the planet. What I discovered there were a few things. Basically, there are animals down there that have no fear of humans and that's the penguins you could go right up to a mother with its chick with your camera and it's like looking beyond you it's almost like they don't see you or they don't perceive you as a threat because they're just not used to seeing humans anywhere seals on icebergs when we were going by just kind of watching us what's that <laughs> whales went right under our boat probably checking us out when we were leaving the Beagle Channel in Ushuaia, Argentina, dolphins and penguins swimming alongside the boat, jumping out of the water. So certainly the wildlife was really fascinating. Seeing the giant albatross also flying down by Cape Horn was quite a treat. But also the landscape is very dramatic. Now, we only went to the Palmer Peninsula area, that northern tip of the finger that sticks out in Antarctica. And that land is only 700 million years old. I say only because the larger landmass of Antarctica, that is eastern Antarctica, the large pie-shaped 
portion of Antarctica is over 3 billion years old. It is one of the oldest continental landmasses on the planet. And the fact that it's covered with over two miles of ice really intensifies the mystery. Not only that, Greg, but Antarctica is the most volcanically active continent in the world with over 91 active volcanoes. Mm -hmm. And I say over because those are the ones that are known. There are volcanoes under the ice as well as geothermal activity that we may not even know about. But this is what can create those giant domes over these geothermal features or in the case of Lake Vostok, which is among the top 10 largest lakes in the world, completely covered with a dome of ice and is over 100 miles long, including rivers and other lakes that it connects to. There's a whole ecosystem under the ice mm -hmm. that is about as known as, say, the planet Europa, which is also an ice planet. It's just there's so much mystery there. We probably know more about the moon and Mars than we do about the continental landmass of Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Seems like a true song of fire and ice. <laughs> and you mentioned talking to Buzz about orbs, but you also spoke to witnesses or a witness who's experienced some kind of UFO activity down there, right? Well, that's right. And as soon as we got to Ushuaia, and I say we, my partner Emily Infinity and I, the first thing she was very much on this tip too, that we wanted to ask anybody who knew anything about Antarctica, were those three things, the craft under the ice, the antediluvian civilization, and the pyramids. And we got some Interesting answers, sometimes disappointing because people just didn't know anything about it. But every once in a while, we would get this gem nugget of a reply. And the sighting of the UFO craft was what we heard from some members of the Argentinian base called Brown that we went to visit. We did stop and speak to people at six research stations in Antarctica of six different countries. This particular one was the Argentinian base, who have a very large presence on the Palmer Peninsula. And they had told us that another one of their bases called Belgrano II, which is actually on the East Antarctica side of the continent, had seen some UFOs and orbs traveling at a very high speed and somewhat erratically that they did not think that they were our own aircraft. And that was just about a month before we were there. So about December 2018, there was a sighting at the Belgrano too. And what was interesting about getting that information while we were asking our line of questions, one of the women who was there, one of the few women at the research station, it's almost always men, she was like, oh, I don't think we should say anything. And we're like, say what? Say what? And we just kept pounding them until finally the marine biologist came out and told us this story that their base had gotten word from Belgrano, too, that there was a sighting. And it was kind of just inner research station chatter amongst themselves relaying this information. So we got it secondhand but from a reliable source. And the fact that they were very reluctant to even tell us in the first place kind of adds to the credibility of the story. 
<laughs> yeah, I love hearing stuff like that. And major cheers to your travels to the end of the earth. Uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, though, because it really is your books, Modern and Future Esoteric, that I'm most familiar with. I'm a big fan of both. They cover a lot of ground, everything from ancient alien genetic engineering, panspermia and RH negative bloodlines to free energy devices, sacred geometry and cryptozoology. And we mentioned this possibility of a Nazi base in Antarctica. I think everyone's heard of that speculation. But you say in modern esoteric that the story isn't just that Hitler escaped and Werner von Braun was brought over under Project Paperclip, but the real story is all the advancements they had made in the esoteric sciences and technology they had created that's outside of the traditional paradigm and that being suppressed. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What have you found about the things they really were working on that really has just not bubbled up to the mainstream even so many years later? We have to understand that Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s was the most technologically advanced country in the world by far. They had things at the end of the war that they could have unleashed with a little more time and changed the tide of the war. If they had a couple more years, we may all be speaking German right now, Greg. They had wonder weapons that were still today classified projects, such as laser beam used in warfare, such as anti-gravity craft that was seen above the big tank battle of Kursk in Soviet Union in 1943, to other wonder weapons as the Nazis described them, including very early testing of nuclear bombs. In fact, when the Nazis knew they were going to lose, and many of the scientists were trying to get themselves captured by the Americans. Some of them actually turned over the secrets of nuclear fission to the Allies. And it was with some of the blasting caps and the uraniums that were in the possession of the German scientists that came over to our Manhattan Project scientists, who then developed the nuclear bomb that we dropped on Japan. So many things that happened in very fast order at the end of the war lead us to believe that the Nazis were in possession of very high technology. Now, some of the highest technology devices, including those craft, the Vril craft, the Hanibudu craft, and other devices such as the Bell, the Die Glock, they just went missing. They were never found, never captured. And the big question is, well, where did they go? Well, they did have very large U-boat submarines, much about the size of our container barges and stuff. Yeah, not really those massive ships. you got to understand it's a U-boat. It's still going into water. Mm -hmm. But if the craft were disassembled, they could have been taken to as far away places as South America or even Antarctica to this region called New Schwabenland that was claimed by the Nazis in the 1930s. And it was interesting, Greg, when I was researching this trip, I found some maps from the Cold War era, including National Geographic maps. The Germans never left. They were always in New Schwabenland after the war. Hmm. And then they became West German bases 
Now they're unified German bases, but they've been there the whole time. And what they found may be one of these craft under the ice. Now, the talk I'm giving at Contact in the Desert in early June down in Palm Springs, the talk is called The Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica. One of the German bases, it's actually a seasonal base called Conan. I was looking at GPS coordinates of some of the things I found on Google Earth, and it turned out to be the exact coordinates of the Conan base. And what it is, and I will show this in my talk, is some kind of massive device, perhaps a craft, that is partially submerged under the ice. And I would speculate that the Germans knew about this since at least the 1930s, because this is in more inland of East Antarctica, and they also have a base on the coast called Neumeyer. And then the region that they originally set up called Base 211, or the New Berlin Base, as Admiral Dolence called it, an impregnable fortress for our Fuhrer, could have been the research facility that they found. And it is near a location called the Schumacher Ponds, which was named after the pilot who discovered these geothermal ponds that never freeze because the water is actually warmer the deeper you go in these ponds. They were able to land a seaplane and explore around and find a very deep crevice that they could get down into and see that it's a whole network under the ice, passages with rivers, fresh water, and geothermal power. And with those assets alone, you could set up a very secure, out-of-the-way, and sustainable base. And that's exactly what the Germans did. And this may be where all that technology, at least the highest technology that they could shepherd out at the end of the war ended up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love it, man. And there are several other little sagas that come in the years after World War II that start to make a lot more sense when you kind of fold that in, that they escaped down there and they had some exotic stuff. And when it comes to alternative exotic technologies, there is this thread that a lot of it was derived from crashed saucers that came here from somewhere else, maybe just through some kind of portal or something. We also have that occult contact side of things too. Can't dismiss that. But sticking with the former, everyone knows that's the story with Roswell and that there have been dozens and dozens of other covered up crashes. But you write about a couple of instances that are important to understand how this exotic technology could have been worked on so early in our history. How do we fold this piece into the exotic technology timeline what did you see kind of even pre-1900s that could really make this seem more plausible to people who aren't so familiar? Sure. Well, the Germans were always fascinated with air travel. We all know the story of the Hindenburg Zeppelin that came over and caught on fire in New Jersey. That was way ahead of its time. In fact, the Germans had been working on aircraft such as the Zeppelin technology since the 19th century, since at least the 1880s. Mm -hmm. So they had always known that if you can rule the air and rule the underwater seas with their U-boats, you could have a smaller army that was better trained and better equipped with superior technology and take on these massive armies. That was their philosophy, and they almost succeeded. 
So they were very, very familiar with all kind of different propulsions and different flying craft. And this goes all the way back to right after World War I with the Vril Society and some psychic medium, mostly women, one named Maria Orsich, who had very long hair, was very beautiful, and was very psychic. And mm -hmm. she was channeling with the Aldebaran star system people, and they were actually gaining blueprint technology that they could reproduce. This is at a time when Germany was a benevolent and very high technologically minded country before the fascist government started taking over in 1933. Germany was very well advanced and had prior access to this technology also through downed craft. There was a very famous craft crash in the 1930s in the Black Forest of Germany, as well as another one in Italy that the Nazi scientists were able to get via Mussolini. And this was a much more intact craft. This is also in the 1930s that they were able to take back and backward engineer. So it's very plausible that the Nazis had developed this anti-gravity and flying craft. Now, fast forward to the post-war era, you have Admiral Byrd going down with a huge armada of ships and planes to Antarctica in 1946, 1947. It was supposed to be a six-month expedition, but something happened that made them turn around and leave after two months. Mm -hmm. And what the reports are is that a craft came up out of the water, confronted the armada. They were trying to shoot it, couldn't even come close to taking it down. It had some kind of force field around it. And this craft used a very advanced kind of laser to slice in half one of the ships, just one, to send a message, don't mess with us. And that is what is believed turned the armada around and headed back. And Admiral Byrd, he was actually a very outspoken person, much more so than I think the Army or Navy wanted him to be, because he made an interview in Chile on the way back, and he said, we are confronted with an enemy that has the ability to fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. Well, there's three things here, Greg, that we still don't have today. A craft that could fly pole to pole at incredible speeds, lasers that could cut a ship in half, and craft that could come out of the water. So this is 1946, 1947, and they're already discussing these very high-tech weapons and crafts. Now, could it be possible that what confronted Admiral Byrd could have been an ET race, perhaps the reptilians that were allied with the Germans and had a base down there too and wanted to get the Americans out of there? Possibly. Mm -hmm. But what is also very interesting that about a decade later after Operation High Jump, the U.S. started doing nuclear testing in the Southern Ocean near New Schwabenland called Operation Argus, A-R-G-U-S. And the official report, if you were to look on Wikipedia, they were exploding nuclear bombs at high altitude. But other reports were saying that they were sending them over to the New Schwabenland bases and trying to exterminate those bases once and for all. And what's so terribly interesting about all this, Greg, is right around that time, 
after Operation Argus, the Antarctica Treaty started to become formulated. And in fact, in 1962, it was ratified, saying that you cannot do any kind of nuclear testing. You can't even do military operations. The Antarctica Treaty made the whole continent like a biosphere. And it's really a stroke of brilliance. Not many people know about what went into the Antarctica Treaty and what it means, because what the treaty says is no nation can own Antarctica. It is open to all researchers, even tourists like myself, can go there and access the continent. It's like not a national park, but a world biosphere park preserving the animals, the minerals, and the resources and making it a demilitarized zone. And this is largely because the U.S. was testing nuclear bombs down there and possibly bombing some of these sites they thought some of our enemies might be hiding out underneath. <laughs> yes, that's a great breakdown and good way to tie in many different things. And Modern and Future Esoteric are just massive books. I think the audio version of Modern Esoteric was something like 33 hours, but you just need all sorts of context to understand this stuff. The history that's been hidden, the principles of universal karma and sacred geometry, the true nature of the material world, the power of vibration and also light. It is so much stuff. How did we ever end up in a place where all this vast knowledge could be hidden away and so many people don't even notice? They don't even notice. And that's the nature of the word esoteric is that it is knowledge that has been hidden away or is known by a select few. The word actually changes when it becomes common knowledge. It becomes exoteric. Mm -hmm. And that is when the general population understands these concepts. But while there are still hidden concepts, while there are still technology, as I've been discussing, that have been withheld from the consciousness of humanity, they're very much these hidden subjects. And this is what I find so terribly fascinating, Greg, because this has been withheld from humanity for a very long time. And as you know, in my book, Modern Esoteric starts very much in the beginning with the mystery schools and then into secret societies who are all very keenly interested in protecting their secrets and hoarding this knowledge in many ways. But now we're at the phase of history where it's the great unveiling, where everything that has been held secret is now finally coming to be known. And it's really up to each one of us as individuals to seek this information out. A lot of people really don't care. That's too bad, because I find these subjects to be the most important information that we could delve into understanding. And when we do, we do start making sense of a lot of these disparate topics that I've been discussing, and they all start to make sense. It's almost like a unified theory of these very interesting subjects all coming together when you start to factor in what has been kept from humanity all these years. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And it's the, I guess, broadly speaking, esoteric philosophy that underpins everything. But to me, even if you can just control the pillars of energy and medicine, you've got almost everything. Throw on a man-made currency control spell in there, and that's just icing on the cake. But in terms of energy and medicine, 
The boundaries of where we're allowed to go in both of these areas are largely controlled by the same people. You set up the American Medical Association. You only license doctors who pass your petroleum pill pushing courses. And people just defer to the experts and say, well, none of that natural healing stuff must work or they'd give it to me. Or alternative energies must not just be there yet or we'd have it. And it's just kind of shocking how simple such a big thing is when you boil it down to the actual source. It's the same people, two very massive areas of influence. Well, you nailed it, Greg. And it is a multifaceted suppression of information that has been occurring for many centuries. But just in our lifetime, you've seen how homeopathic remedies, which were tried, true, and tested, for hundreds of years, our grandparents and great-grandparents' remedies for even a cold that were non-toxic, that were effective, they've all fallen to the wayside because there is this petrochemical medical consortium that controls the very lucrative medicine and health care in this country. And I do cover this in Modern Esoteric. Because it's very important for people to understand that this is all part of the control grid. Something interesting was said to me the other day, and that is in Europe, where most of the medicine is paid for by the government, they have medical care that is basically free, they also outlaw genetically modified food. They also are very keenly aware of preservatives and prevent those. They also have no fluoride in the water. Well, that's not the case here, but we have to pay for our health care. And guess what? All these things make us sicker and make that industry even more wealthy. So think about it. If you have a government that doesn't do these things to people, but it pays for their medical care, of course they'd want you to be healthy. But if you don't, if it's all for profit, like in this country, then yeah, they want to make you sicker. And isn't it interesting that the American Cancer Society is not the American Anti-Cancer Society? Mm -hmm. It's almost as if they promote the industry of cancer. And we've known since at least the 1930s with Royal Raymond Reif and his microscope that could actually observe the cancer cells, and he found frequencies that could destroy them. There have been a cure for cancer for almost a hundred years, but he was ruthlessly suppressed and his technology then bottled up and only now have other scientists been re-examining Reif's machine and coming out with these frequency ways of treating cancer and other diseases. But if you want to get uh, Reif treatment, you have to go to Mexico. It's still illegal in this country to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is an interesting point about them not calling it the Anti-Cancer Society. And it speaks to the power of thought and perception and language and ties right into this. Because I wanted to quote Modern Esoteric here and ask you about this. Because you write about the planet's control network, both human and non-human, which I'm on board with. And you say... The Luciferian Egregore Master wants his subordinate captains to be attacked, people like Bush, Kissinger, Rockefeller, DuPont, because it fuels the Egregore thought form. 
Talk to us about this. I understand how spiritual energy is a currency all on its own, but how do we flesh out this higher level of the control network, this Luciferian egregore master, and how do we walk the fine line of educating people on it without exacerbating the problem? Yeah, this is really the heart of it. And my work with Leo Lyonzagami, who is a published author with CCC Publishing, my publishing business, and you can see both of our books on cccpublishing.com. Leo goes into great lengths explaining the egregore, this thought control master that would rather have us fighting each other or blaming it on the Rockefellers or the Rothschilds, who are really more the captains and the colonels in this fight. And the real generals are those malevolent ETs that really call the shots on this planet. And that's what we have to understand. Until we understand that there's another force out there we have to deal with, because our numbers are far, far greater than theirs. All we have to do is wake up to the manipulation and understand who and what is behind this. Can we finally get rid of them? So they would much rather have us divided and fighting amongst ourselves and blaming it on the colonels and the captains, when in reality it is this ET force that has been here on this planet for a very long time and has been controlling us through this wealthy cabal elite and making them take the steps necessary to consolidate their own power. Really, they've been played and they have sold out the human race by doing so. But as people wake up and understand all this, you see, we can't go back, Greg. Once you start to understand these subjects, it's like Pandora's box. The genie's out of the bottle. You see the magician's trick, and the magician can't fool you anymore once you understand it. So that's why I think these subjects are so very important for people to understand, because they will help you, and they will also make you healthier and wiser in your life decisions, and probably make you live longer and be in a much better state as you grow older, knowing that we are being poisoned in various ways and that there are other alternatives to medicine and health that have been shielded from us for many decades or even centuries. Mm, cheers to that. And you got to know the problems with conventional society to learn that you should stay on the fringes of it and then also learn about how to armor up and protect yourself from the campaigns that are going on. And also, thanks for facilitating that interview with Leo so many years ago. You were the catalyst for that. And I like how even though you cover a lot of dark conspiratorial things, you stay hopeful and you highlight a lot of the stuff they don't want us to know, much of which is how reality is supposed to be because it's baked into the natural world and the power of light. Water and consciousness are all things at the forefront of my mind lately. In your section about DNA, you have a curious paragraph I wanted to ask you about where you say, within some parts of the metaphysical community, it has been accepted as common knowledge that light codes are being transmitted to this planet. The higher a consciousness is developed, the less need there is for any type of technological device to receive them. Russian scientists have discovered that our DNA can create invisible structured patterns in the energy of space, thus producing magnetized wormholes, 
The DNA attracts these bits of information and passes them on to our consciousness. This is a process of cosmic communication. Well, I am right there with you, and I think there's a lot to know about light, information transfer, and DNA. I think that's why the Vatican has such a robust astronomy department and high-tech telescopes. But can you elaborate on what you're saying here at all? What is going on with this section of research? Sure. Well, with our DNA, there's this whole vast area of our DNA called the dark DNA, which is largely unknown and still unexplored by researchers. And they pretty much dismiss it as just this part of our DNA that doesn't matter. Well, it actually matters a lot. And it has to do with the fact that we are all spirits in a human body and that we're essentially light beings, except we live in such a dense reality on this third dimensional plane that it keeps us blocked out from knowing things such as the light body within us, such as understanding that our DNA is really an antenna, is really a receptor to what is also occurring around us in the physical world as well as the universe. So the Schumann resonance has been going off the charts lately, that the Earth is now being bombarded with light and you can look at some of the charts on the Schumann resonance, how this is raising the vibration in people. But for those who aren't understanding it, it can also be very troubling. And those that are resisting the change or still in a very fear-based mindset, these are going to be very difficult times. But those who are receptive to understanding and knowing that we are light bodies and that this is coming into the world right now at this very specific time to advance the human race, you'll be in a much better position to understand and even thrive with the coming new dawning of humanity. And I really think it's that profound that we are about to take this giant leap forward as humanity. Call it the 100th monkey effect when just enough of our species starts to get it, to have that light bulb moment, we could have these profound changes in our consciousness and possibly even our physiology that will change us into the new human. And Albert Einstein and others spoke of the new human, who we are going to become. Now, there's also a flip side. There's also a dark side to this. There's the rollout of the 5G network that's going to start irradiating us mm -hmm. like a microwave oven. Is very dangerous. I'm trying myself to move into an area around trees because trees absorb the 5G radiation. Hmm. And while I might not be able to download movies as fast as people that live in the city, I probably will not be irradiated as much either. So there's things like this that if you are paying attention and you're well aware of what is coming on because these dark forces, this egregore mind, this malevolent ET set does not want humanity to wake up. And they know if we do, it's game over for them. So we are right on the cusp. I mean, we are walking the razor's edge right now from flipping into a very dark World War Three scenario, destroying this planet, or waking up and coming into a golden age for humanity. And that's certainly what I wish to see come to pass and help foster as best I can contribute to that. Well, I like that. 
But man, sometimes timelines are quite long, sometimes much longer than a human lifespan. And all we can do is hope to see that change within our limited window of time. Of course, maybe we'll be back again and catch it in the next round. But on the subject of positive off-the-radar energies and technologies, in your utopia section of Modern Esoteric, you break down all the unknown discoveries that could bring about a seemingly utopian system. We all know about Tesla and his many inventions and his plans for a world energy grid, but what can you tell us about in this area that you find exciting that people might not be aware of? Well, it's also releasing technology that has been hidden and suppressed from the masses, such as free energy technology, which we've had for over 100 years, as you mentioned, with Tesla. Medicine technology, as I mentioned, with Royal Raymond Rife and his frequency microscope. Things that have just not served these cabal masters of ours that would make us healthier or make the planet cleaner. So I would say one of the first steps is then to release this technology, get us off of oil, coal, gas, and nuclear power, make it a completely sustainable free energy system. All we got to do is just start backtracking and looking at what Tesla was working on with his world system, which was an attempt to give free energy to the world that can be tapped right out of the fabric of the planet itself and distributed wirelessly to any device or car, airplane, ship at sea. It would even take away the need to refuel. Everything would always just be charged up as a result of this. That's a good starting point. But then when we look forward into where we could go in the golden age of humanity, it's truly a Star Trek future. And keep in mind, Greg, Star Trek was humans 300 years from now. It is us going into the universe and exploring, just as the age of exploration on this planet, when all the continents were being discovered, it could be us doing that in a Star Trek-like scenario in 300 years from now. And it's really interesting that Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, he was sitting in on these seances that had some psychic medians much along the line of the Real Society and Maria Orsek in the 1950s down in L.A., and it was called the Council of Nine. He was just listening to them discussing what the Earth was going to be like. They were talking to Earthlings in our future in that 350, back in the 1950-year span. And he was in the back of the room writing this all down, and many things that he integrated into the original Star Trek series, such as no money whatsoever. You just say chocolate shake and it just comes out. You never see anybody using money in Star Trek, as well as the prime directive, which is that if humans were to go into outer space and encounter less developed species, that you cannot affect their timeline. You cannot affect their evolutionary change that you can just go as observers. So many things that were planted in the Star Trek series may come to pass as being the reality of the universe and how we can get over this. So in my utopia, it's the utopia section in Future Esoteric, there is a chapter called The End of Money. 
and this would be a great day for humanity if we could ever get past the Federal Reserve bankers that pretty much control every country in this world and move on to the currency of love, so to speak, or the gift economy as is practiced at Burning Man. And it would be a way of giving. And when you give, an interesting thing happens. You can look at the brain itself and it is triggered by generosity and compassion. And it does something like give the individual a bit of a high. It makes you feel good. It's where we're supposed to be. This whole construct of money is totally a fabrication of Earth. In fact, my understanding of many of the ET benevolent societies that are observing us find it totally abhorrent that we are still under this money supply. And they have no concept of it whatsoever. If they had it, it was done away with a long, long time ago where everything is just what can we do in service to others instead of service to self, which is what we see so often with the greed that is populated by money in this world. So the utopia section in Future Esoteric is just a rethinking of what we could be. And it is why it's called Future Esoteric, because we're looking forward into this golden age and saying these are some things that we could develop, including superhuman abilities, which could be a whole other discussion too. what the potential of the human mind and the human body hold in store. Mm. Yes. And the utopia section probably is my favorite because I've been digesting how screwed we are for way too long. So I love folding in all the undisclosed technologies and stuff. And I love the Council of Nine story. I haven't thought about that in a while, but yeah, there were a lot of influential people there. The developer of the helicopter, the Bell helicopter, Arthur Young, and then his wife, Ruth, who I believe is the woman that Oswald's wife, Lee Harvey Oswald's wife, was learning Russian from when she was staying, uh, when she was staying with Arthur's wife, Ruth, in uh, Texas. There's just a lot of influence in that blue blood seance circle. It is kind of crazy to think about some contact with nine other beings and the influence that that seance or series of seances really could have had on this country and all these different little threads. Mm. The potential of the human species is beyond our comprehension. We could very easily be a space-exploring, highly advanced, telepathic species if these roadblocks were taken away from us and we could live up to our full potential. And I agree with you. The Utopia section is very inspiring to me, too. And I still go back and read it and even reference some of the quotes I've had in it. And that's a great little tidbit that you just added about the Council of Nine. Sometimes there are moments in history Say, for example, the period of the ancient Greeks or the time of Aristotle, who lived at the same time as the Buddha. There are just these moments in time when a great blossoming can occur. But what we want to see, Greg, is this blossoming happening all around the world to all people. And if people would comprehend the large scale of all this, I guarantee you pollution would come to an end. The degradation of the planet would come to an end. 
even the realization that animals have rights of their own and need to be protected. We could really make this a garden planet as it was always intended to be, rather than a fear-based planet, which is the predominant emotion that emanates out of this world right now and keeps us in this duality state. So to bring us all together into this oneness would be one of the greatest achievements we could ever see in our lifetimes. And I hope we can catch a glimpse of that. I really do. But we're right here on that razor's edge. So things could flip very quickly and very easily. And we just have to stay positive and think that things are going to work out for the better and to be a part of that. Be the solution you'd like to see in the world rather than a problem making it worse. Here, here. Yes, I agree. And we should not only know what's possible, but cultivate it and nurture it. And hopefully we can manifest that world we want. And just as we're wrapping this thing up with all the secrecy and control, I know you like to stay positive, but what makes you hopeful given that this control goes back a long time, maybe even to our origins. Apparently, they're even game in the timeline. It can be hard to be kind of hopeful, isn't it? Oh, truly it can be, but it also is hopeful that we can wake up, that we can have this transcendent moment for humanity where we do start to understand this on a very intuitive level. And that's really important to understand because once somebody starts to really grok all these subjects, it becomes their power. It's almost like if you wanted to be a black belt in karate, you don't just say, oh, I'm going to wear this black belt and that makes me a black belt. It doesn't work that way. You have to put in the time, put in the effort, and then down the line, become a black belt in karate. But then it becomes your power and it stays with you. And in the same way of understanding these subjects, the more that you understand them and spend time to break them open and get to the bottom of them, they too become your power. That's why I find the study of these esoteric subjects so very vitally important to everybody because it will make you the new human. It will make you more adept at understanding all this stuff and being the change you want to see in the world if you're of a positive mind. That's probably why they have been bottled up in the secret societies and the mystery schools for so long because they were a source of power. And now that this is starting to go mainstream so much that people are understanding them a lot better, it will change the nature of esoteric into exoteric. And that's what I would like to see as the change in the world. And if we can help manifest that, Greg, you doing your radio programs, me doing my books and us talking together and helping people understand it, then I'd say we're offering a great service to humanity by doing so. Indeed. <laughs> well, amen to that. And my impression is kind of that we might never overcome the control structure on a large scale. We might always have some ignorant masses. Their nets do tend to catch a lot of people, but freedom is also an individualized process. And from that perspective, with a healthy mind, and body, you can sort of transcend all this shit, and a fortified consciousness can really be your skeleton key to the universe. So I hope people do focus on their own individual lives as much as they can, but man, 
This has been a lot of fun. So much to know, so much to ponder. I'm glad we have you to sift through the totality of it. Thanks so much. Before we call it in, let's remind people about your work and maybe let them know where they can catch you speaking live and all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. I will be speaking at Contact in the Desert, May 31st, June 1, 2, 3. Also up in Mount Shasta, the Avatars Conference in the end of September. Those are the next two confirmed ones I have. A couple other conferences may also percolate up through. But anybody who's interested in my work can go to bradolson.com, see about my various projects, or cccpublishing.com to check out the books that I publish, including other authors, and you can also order them online. And if they're my books, they come through my office, and I'm able to sign them for people on the way out. And find me on YouTube on the Esoteric Series channel, and I'm now posting chapters from Future Esoteric that are now released as the audiobook. So always coming out with new content, putting it on there. You can find me on Facebook, Esoteric Book Series page, Brad Olson page, or CCC Publishing page, or Sacred Places 108 Destination. So anybody that wants to reach me can use one of those online forums to get in contact and Come to one of my talks. I'd love to meet you and sign books for you at one of the conferences I'm speaking at as well. Solid, man. Well, this has been a real pleasure. If you're ever in the Southern California area, definitely get in touch. Or if you ever plan on hosting guided tours, that sounds like it'd be pretty fun as well. But with that said, I really appreciate your time. It's been awesome. I hope people come out to the conferences. And I look forward to Beyond Esoteric coming out next year. Sounds good, Greg, and we'll pick it up then when the new book comes out. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure talking to you. You got it. Have a good one, man. Well, oh my, my, people. Brad Olson with his finger firmly on the pulse of some of my favorite subjects, all wrapped into one episode. Great body of work. It seems to me the game truly is a fight to control the people's perception, and it really is a full-spectrum attack. The hidden side of World War II, alternative medicines, alternative energy, the intricacies of the control structure, it all works together, and it's the esoteric philosophy and its accompanying applications that are the linchpins to understanding all the things they cut around. And I hope it doesn't start to get repetitive, but I think it's so easy to slip back into conventional thinking, and it's because you really have to seek out material like this. And then you have to carry it forward because nearly every other thing you encounter throughout the day is going to reinforce the conventional. And there's definitely parts of the conspiratorial journey where you learn something and then you just can't shut up about it and you want to inform everyone. And then I think the more sure people get about something, the more they kind of get over that need to soapbox about it. It just starts to feel daunting. Like, where do you start? It happens to me all the time when I meet new people and they find out what I do and then they ask, oh, well, what's your favorite conspiracy? And it's the worst question in the world, right? But I've narrowed down my go-to response to be something like, 
I guess my favorite conspiracy is that an entire body of once-known ancient esoteric knowledge has been kept out of the mainstream that has implications for technology, medicine, energy, and the nature of reality itself, and that control over this information and the crafting of a narrative that dismisses it is fundamental to control over the planet. So what do you do? <laughs> because no one really knows what to do with that. They're expecting a simple answer like 9-11 or Roswell. And I don't get how 9-11 is anyone's favorite anything. But when people ask questions they don't really want answers to, we have an obligation to make them squirm a little bit. But if they didn't ask, then bringing it up probably won't do much good. But it's true. All the psi abilities we talk about, what life and death even are, how aspects of the power pyramid can be non-human, and I might even add how planets form and why they're hollow, but this is the big picture stuff that really matters, and I can't break it down from the back of an Uber, Bill. I'm sorry. And kudos to Brad for not only exploring these topics, but also for exploring the world. For seeing these megalithic and magical sites himself firsthand, and living his best life. Yes, this show is about the research, and some of our guests do just write a good book or two and live otherwise normal lives, but a lot of them are great examples of how to navigate life. We have this archetype of a struggling, barely sane conspiracy researcher who's broke, overweight, badly dressed, while everyone is giving them the, is he going to be alright side-eye? And that is in the mix. That really was my impression of some of my favorite presenters in the mid-90s. But I think a lot of THC's guest lineup bucks that stereotype, and instead, you see people who are fulfilling their purposeful life. When I was last on with Sam Tripoli, we got into this towards the end, and I tried to give people some hope about how they can transition from their shitty job and get into something they love, and Sam said, yeah, anyone can do a podcast like we do. <laughs> and sure, but I don't think we need more conspiracy podcasts. I don't encourage people to just copy this model because, yes, it might be better than your job now, but it's also probably not your calling. Don't imitate, create. My point is just that I found that when I wasn't doing something meaningful that I was called to do, every day was a drag. It was an uninspired uphill climb to nowhere for barely enough to get by on. I was a goddamn Sisyphus personified. But when I found a way to express what I felt was a deep calling, the world really did open up. And it's all on the record, too. People now say they found the show, liked the show, went back and started at the beginning, and they just fell in love with it so much more because... It's all on the record and documented, the entire journey. From disposable GameStop manager to the conspiracy podcast king of San Diego. And so I'm just saying, find that thing. Anything you might enjoy creating. Handmade knives, clothing, high quality food. Take your favorite activity, master it, and then teach lessons online. There's no shortage of options and the internet is an infinite sea of customers. And it's not always going to be like this either. It is changing, so strike while the iron's hot. And to bring it back to Brad, Brad seems called to travel and to tell the world about his travels. 
And he's been able to do what he wants personally and also share those experiences in a positive way that's compatible with the greater good. And so he's been really successful. To me, that's the key. A selfish desire fulfilled in a way that contributes positively to the world at large. Now that's a template, sure. And for Brad, he can write off all his travel as business expense. Smart man. But I had a lot of fun with this one. If you're going to contact in the desert, do stop in and tell Brad you liked hearing him on THC. And in higher side news, I am officially going to be at Gordon White and Austin Coppics as above event in Portland this fall. Do you come out and see the Holy Trinity in the flesh? I'm kidding, but I love those guys and I look forward to the hang and the stress-free trip as I'm not involved in the event in any way other than to sit in the crowd with you guys. So if that moves the needle for you, get a ticket while they are still available, if they even are. Also, the joint session for June is on the 20th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. I'm actually hoping we can find a place on the newly designed website to put a countdown clock or something so people can easily find when the next one is. I know there have been issues, but I'm telling you now. But I will look for some more automatic and long-term solution. And of course, if you only heard the one-hour conversation with Brad today that I put out for free, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you can hear the full, uninterrupted, two-hour conversations with this guest and every guest. In this one, we talked about where Brad has seen a real elongated skull, and you can too, cold plasma and monoatomic gold, Brad's exploration of Lovelock Cave, Brad's favorite sacred sites in North America, seeing the Antarctic opening to the inner Earth, RH negative bloodlines, and of course, no conversation would be complete without folding in a little panspermia and the slave species hypothesis. I'm telling you, as diverse and action-packed as always, support the show you love and treat yourself to twice as much of it. I work hard for the money, and I'm going to work hard for you. Or something like that. But peace, love, and happiness, good people. I've done my part. Your move, conventional paradigm, proper uppers, hidden history hiders, and keepers of the esoteric toolbox. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. To ask you a question. I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed?
tried and wished, but we don't have a choice. It seems we're stuck here, but you can find noses, drown out the noise. Now use that altar, and up your magic game, and listen to THC, you know, you go with the entities. If you ever see the UFO, don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life, oppressed, oppressed. But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that? We- 